even though there are clear commitments by governments, there are clear commitments by good, strong companies and by financial organisations who are choosing to cut emissions and who are saying that they are playing an active role to end things like deforestation and protect the planet. And these things are not nothing, they're just not enough at the moment. Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Centre in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello everyone and welcome to our newest episode of Sustainability in Finance podcast. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming a renowned sustainable finance expert, bringing not only a great understanding of the ESG regulations in both the EU and the UK, but also practical experience of building sustainable finance solutions for a variety of clients globally. So please join me in welcoming Miss Nadia Humphreys. Nadia, hello and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk about a subject that I hold very dear to my heart. And we really do enjoy talking about the subject, especially here in the region where we are based, because we do believe that these discussions, there's never enough discussions on these topics because they are developing so fast and also they can be sometimes quite difficult to navigate. So any help from the experts is really welcome. We can dive in right now. And so you currently work as the global head of climate and regulations at Bloomberg in London. And you also sit on quite a few different technical expert groups, which we will go through shortly. There is no doubt that you have an impressive career path full of important milestones and achievements across different parts of sustainable finance agenda or sustainable finance topics, ESG and regulations, and much, much more. So could you maybe walk us through some of these milestones and technical groups and maybe starting from your from the beginning of your career through your work as a technical expert for the commission and observer for the platform on sustainable finance and how it all came together to now Yes, absolutely. And it is quite a mouthful when you start to read through the bio. Um, So I am fortunate. I do work uh, for a number of public policy areas. Um, So a couple of the the are active right now would be things like, um, it's called the Green Technical Advisory Group. But ultimately what that is, is it advises the UK government on the development of their green taxonomy. Um, I also support the Monetary Authority of Singapore. um, And that is in a green finance industry task force. But again, it's to develop their taxonomy. And as you rightly mentioned, uh, currently I'm sitting uh, as an observer to the platform for sustainable finance in Europe, uh, which is the development, again, of a taxonomy, uh, but more broadly, sustainable finance. And really, all these policy roles share a very common goal. And that goal is, is to direct capital to support an environmentally sustainable future. Um, So if you think about everyone that I am working with from a public policy perspective, they have already recognised the need to shift economies to become more sustainable. And they also recognise that to do that shift needs money, it needs capital investment. And that is more capital than public finance alone can achieve. So they need tools and mechanisms that encourage private capital to flow to support a common agenda. And really, the common objective for all these policies is exactly that. 
And when we started, so you asked me a little bit about kind of the origin story. So I started in something called the Technical Expert Group. And our role was to come up with a tool. And the problem statement we really had was when we looked at the market and we looked at the definition of sustainable or environmentally sustainable, we saw lots and lots of different versions of it. And actually, the the typical approach was something like, as long as I was outperforming my peer group in a particular environmental or social characteristic, then I was considered to be best in class and therefore sustainable. Uh, Now, when we started to look at things like ambitions for net zero by 2050, we realized that just being better than everybody else actually wasn't good enough. And we needed to signpost what companies had to do if we were going to stand any chance of hitting net zero targets. So the tool that we work to develop in the technical expert group is something called a taxonomy. Um, And a taxonomy, if you uh, want it in kind of layman's terms, is a little bit like a dictionary. And so we took the first phase of the taxonomy from various experts um, across the, the economy, scientists, academics that work in particular fields. And then they looked at the heaviest emitting sectors originally in Europe. And then they came up with criteria across those sectors for what the right decarbonizing trajectory would be. So that was an environmental objective that's called mitigation, and that was looking to decarbonize the economy. They also looked at the fact that climate change is problematic and whether we in Europe decarbonize, potentially the rest of the world does not. And so with a heating uh, world, what does that mean to me as an economic actor? How do I need to adapt to climate change? So we gave two different types of criteria for these activities to follow. And you might be asking me, what is an activity? So an activity, if you think about it, might be something like in simple words, like I make plastics, I'm a manufacturer of plastics, or maybe I'm a producer of energy, solar power, wind power, or even fossil fuel based energy. So there's a set of criteria that tell me how I should operate to be what's called aligned to the taxonomy. Yeah, so definitely thank you for defining the economic activity as well. I mean, this time we're not going to go into every single part of the taxonomy because that would be very technical, but actually quite interesting, I think, as well. But what I often think when talking about the taxonomy or even, you know, doing or actually getting any questions on the EU taxonomy is exactly as you said. So it was based on the combination of different knowledges, right? It was academics, it was actually scientists, because you often say and you often hear that the EU taxonomy is a science-based classification, right, or tool you were part of some of these discussions, right? So how does it actually work? I know we have quite a few questions to go through, but I'm, I was always wondering how, how does it work in practice? Because suddenly you are combining quite a few different worlds, right? Yeah, you absolutely are. It's a really good question. It's the first time actually I've been asked a question in terms of like the logistics of a technical expert group. And to be fair, my remit in that group and my background is all from financial markets. Um, so I previously worked in a bank. I also worked in a buy-side institution, I work for insurance, so property catastrophe insurance, and I work for pensions. So kind of dotted myself around uh, different organisations. And therefore, my role in the taxonomy was looking at usability. So basically, it was saying, if the taxonomy is this tool to direct capital, could someone from the capital markets come in and tell us what are the levers and mechanisms that encourage capital to flow in a particular way? So that was the advice I was giving. But you're quite right. We had to rely on people that knew how to make 
green cement or what the right decarbonizing pathway for energy would be. I have none of that expertise. So the point of the technical expert group is to bring together subject matter experts in various shapes and sizes across the economy and build a framework that will work. Uh, So my contribution was always on the regulatory regime. So how would you encourage financial actors to operate in the right way and to incentivize cheaper capital to non-financial companies who want to transition? That was the role that I played. And so I'm actually learning obviously more and more about how the platform works. The main reason for that is because we, as ISFC actually got onto the platform this year. And exactly as you mentioned, so I know that you have different subgroups as well. So looking at, for example, as you said, usability, which was, I believe, your subgroup, also on data. I think that goes together, right? Data and usability. And it is quite interesting because usability is something maybe doesn't come up often enough because actually usability of any regulation is key, especially when it's meant to be implemented in practice across pretty much all the big companies and financial institutions. And I think this is something you know, that usability or let's say ease of use <laughs> is something we often hear about, especially from the stakeholders here, I think in the region where maybe let's say they're less used to regulations of this type, maybe environmentally or you know, focus on environmental sustainability. So what is it about usability? So what does it actually mean when you like, what do you talk about? Or maybe how does that discussion look like, right? When you have people from financial industry, but then also you... On the one hand, you want to make it work, but at the same time, you you know, you still don't want to create too much of administrative burden for these companies. Yeah, it's a really difficult balancing act, actually. And so when you think about it and maybe taking a step back from the taxonomy and all the implementation issues, but a sustainable future makes good economic sense. And if you think about it from a, a country level, the transition is going to be quite labor intensive. Uh, like there's strong economic multipliers for governments who want to invest and transition to a sustainable future. You know, we need to plant trees, we need to retrofit buildings, we need to make cities cleaner, we need to upgrade the way that we manufacture key raw materials. Uh, we don't want you know, new goods to be made in an unsustainable way. So the list is really long of all the things we want to do. It's just a case of how we prioritise it and, and again, how we finance it. So you're quite right. The most developed framework at the moment is the EU one. We talked a little about me working to support the UK and Singapore, but what they're doing is saying, if I look at the blueprint that is the EU, can I adopt it and does it make sense to my local economy? And so when we say the central task for the platform is updating the EU taxonomy, there are a couple of things we mean. So one is we prioritise the really heavy emitting sectors. Um, Actually, we've been very successful. A lot of people now want to be included in the taxonomy. They recognise that it's attractive to be in the taxonomy and certain sectors you know, like service and retail aren't considered and would like to be. They would like to get those signals of what they need to do to attract capital. So there's there's broadening the existing taxonomy. That's one of the remits. The other is broadening it to other what they call environmental objectives. At the moment, at the start, you heard me talk about mitigation. That's how I decarbonize and adaptation. That's 
how I adapt to climate change. But also what the EU wants to do is look at things like circular economy, so waste management, or it wants to look at other pollutants other than just the carbon emissions. It wants to look at healthy use of, of water. Water is a finite resource. Um, and so there are additional environmental objectives that need to be completed for the taxonomy to be covering everything. So that's a big, big body of work on the platform, uh, hand in hand with the commission. The other thing is we already have step one of the rules, like the regulation. Now, the regulation says to a non-financial company, if we go back to I don't know, my plastics company, so that plastics company knows what good looks like, and they are now expected to report of the plastic they produce and the money they make, how much of that plastic fits with these new rules. Similarly, they have to look forward and say, look, maybe I'm not producing plastic in a particularly sustainable way, but I'd like to be. And so they say, well, this is my plan out for the next five years of how I will make my plastic in a more sustainable way. And they explain that in a very specific way, that if they are financing that change, so for example, they're raising debt, or maybe they want a loan to be able to upgrade some of their manufacturing processes, that money can come from the financial actors who themselves will get credit for financing my transition. So the whole interconnectivity, and when we talk about it being usable, number one, do I, the plastics company, understand what I have to do and report to understand what good looks like and how I explain that to my investors? And then secondly, if I'm a financial market participant, do I understand how I have to report? So what is good? Where are the signals that I need to look for in the economy that would be my cash is moving towards transitioning a company to improve? Um, when I see a lot of people talk on panels today about the taxonomy, one of the first criticisms they will say to me is, well, the taxonomy is like the best in the best. It's the greenest of the green. And not many companies operate green. So really, the numbers are really low. When I look at the percentage of taxonomy aligned investment, it's all single digit. And when they're saying that to me, often what they're referring to is a revenue based number, like current performance. And they're absolutely right. Current performance is not where it needs to be. But the really interesting part about the taxonomy framework is the forward-looking metrics, so the capital expenditure, the operating expenses of that company. Those are forward-looking indicators. And actually, when we start to look at where to legislate and encourage better activity, it's in those forward indicators. We want the money to go to the transition. And so a useful framework means that all these actors very clearly know and understand what they need to do and what they need to report and how. Uh, at the moment, they don't. And that's fine. It's not necessarily a reflection of the complexity. It's more for me a reflection of change. We're asking companies to report in a very different way to the way they have traditionally. But if done successfully, and you've got everyone walk, you know, reporting to a common framework, and you've got financing activities to a common framework, that actually should be a very, very simple regime. It just needs to get into the kind of lexicon and the narrative of the markets today. And it's not there yet. Which, I mean, normally takes longer than just one or two years, right? And it's, you actually gave a very good overview of the, it's not only usability of the taxonomy, but what you mentioned. So obviously, as we said in the beginning, it's a classification. So it's essentially a list of activities with science-based information. So even as such, it's a very useful tool because you already have the scientific technical numbers, technical parameters, let's say, 
as to what it means to be green for specific activity. But also what doesn't get mentioned too often, unfortunately, is also all the other uses of the framework, as you said. So actually it can be used as a, because, you know, under then under the regulation, you have to report annually. So it actually can be used for monitoring of the progress, right? It can actually be used to maybe consider for your strategy. If you actually want to, you know, set some kind of targets or goals, you have that, you can use it as a map or some kind of tool to navigate better. So there's, there's quite a few different aspects to it. But one aspect we very briefly touched on and also is often considered as a big issue is data. So, and I know that if I'm not mistaken, by the way, here, but I understand that the technical expert subgroup is data and usability, right? So when it comes to data, so what is the discussion on that? Because obviously data is always a big challenge, not only here, but also for CSRD, for pretty much any <laughs> any disclosure-focused regulation. And I understand you you also, in the subgroup on data and usability, also published a report recently, right? And so maybe could you elaborate on some of the findings when it comes to data? Maybe also what I would be interested in to understand how the information and the recommendations you put together as a subgroup, how is it actually used by the commission? Yeah, they're two very good and slightly different questions. So I'll try and tackle them both. But if I forget the second part, let, let me know. You're quite right. When we think about how to make the tools useful, the main usability issue we see today relates to availability and comparability of data. So a lot of the focus really does remain on ensuring the right things get measured and they get disclosed in a consistent and comparable way for all actors across Europe. And access to decision useful data is critical to unlocking capital. Now, one of your problems in the EU is we've only at the moment mandated that European companies of a particular size have to report under this regime. When you look at large credit institutions, when you look at asset managers, the majority of their investment is global. So it sits outside of Europe. Uh, that's a problem. So do I only report for the thin slice of Europe, what is green, and then for the rest of my holdings I don't. I don't talk about how it's sustainable. Um, so the access to data and the ability, for example, to use things like estimates to explain the full balance sheet or the full investment universe for an asset manager is really important. So what you will see in our report are some recommendations we made on things like if you wanted to apply the taxonomy internationally, how you would consider to do that. The second thing in data is it's all well and good. We've said, you know, to the plastics manufacturer, this is the revenue number we're expecting, and this is the capital and operating expenses number. But within that, there is definitely an, an education hurdle. And the taxonomy, whilst it does exist today, still needs some supplementary guidance so everybody really does understand what good reporting looks like. And I know the ISFC will play a big role here, so thank you very much uh, for the work that you're doing in communicating to the broader community what good looks like and supporting particularly the non-financial companies with their disclosure. There's lots of technical detail in terms of how to do this report correct. Uh, you and I will not do service to that technical detail in this podcast. But it is something that even when I look at data today and you ask me about the report that we produced in October last year, 
yeah, we were seeing problems. We were seeing inaccurate reporting. I don't think that was intentionally inaccurate. I think people were just struggling with a new framework and a new way of explaining what they're eligible to do, so the type of activities that could be covered by the taxonomy. And then separately, there's this metric called alignment. So what proportion of what they're doing already meets these technical criteria in the taxonomy. And when you start to think about the complexity of day-to-day operations, things like maybe I subcontract out parts of my business, maybe I have some uh, joint venture agreements, like how do I report all this nuance of what I do? that can be really hard. Or if, for example, I'm a large supermarket and a large supermarket is not covered under the taxonomy, but I upgrade my warehouses and retrofit them for energy efficiency, or I upgrade my transport fleet to be zero emission vehicles, those activities are covered under the taxonomy, but my revenue number isn't. So those types of things definitely need to be worked through. Now, we made some recommendations in the report in October. And I think the second part of your question was, Nadia, what have the commission done with those recommendations? I mean, I would ask a very similar question, but I I am comforted having been an observer to the second platform that a lot of those recommendations are now passed through to the second platform to develop them, Uh, which is really encouraging. If you read through the full kind of 180 plus pages we published in October, at the very end of the report, you would have been rewarded with some recommendations that we made to platform 2.0 in terms of the work we wanted them to carry on. And what's really comforting is the platform 2.0 agenda sits really nicely on top of the recommendations we've already made. Um, So I think it's going to be a really, really exciting time for this second platform in terms of the commission actually adopting those recommendations and starting to implement them. So the question there is, do they need to implement them with more kind of FAQs and and supplementary guidance for the market? Or are there any kind of foundational issues in the legal text? Do we need to review some of those? Do we want to reconsider some of that? I think those are the balancing acts. Do we draw on the existing framework and provide guidance? Or are there adjustments we need to make to kind of the baseline framework? So essentially, it's it's a little bit of relay as well. So we are now joining the platform and luckily... We still have you as an observer as well, so to share your experiences and also, you know, your approach to the development of the taxonomy. And it's always really challenging. And I think also, you know, obviously with other regulations, CSRD, SFDR, is the interpretation of the regulation in practice. What does it actually mean? Because one thing, when it's written on the paper, and to be honest, even on the paper, the taxonomy and the regulations are fairly complex, but going through them and then actually trying to implement it and apply it in practice it's only then when you realize what are the challenges, right? And you mentioned something really important, and that is education. Because, you know, it, the decisions and how the usability of the taxonomy is improved shouldn't really happen in a silo. It should be a conversation, obviously, uh, consultations and feedback is, I believe, very important. And I know that not only the commission, but also EFRAC for CSRD, consultations is a really big part of that. So... What do you think are some of the other, maybe apart from or on top of education, what are some other key components of securing or maybe ensuring that usability? Maybe, you know, what other things could financial institutions or some of the main market players do to ensure that the usability or maybe that they are heard and um, their feedback is also incorporated in the taxonomy? Yeah, it's a good question. Maybe I'll come to the nuts and bolts of that question as of what you can practically do a little later. Maybe if it's okay with you, one thing I might start with is if we are successful 
in these frameworks, so the broader sustainable finance agenda, then what we want to do is empower the C-suite of companies to prioritise the need to safeguard and maintain our planet. That's what we want to do. That's the objective. And what we're already seeing is, for example, European asset holders are predicting systemic environmental risk will be more important than financial risk in actually quite a short time horizon. Some reports say in three to five years. So we've heard these things said in many forums by many prominent speakers. And if I do the litmus test right now of are we successful, even though we have this framework, in absolute terms, I would want to see that emissions are falling, in fact, falling by 50% to be on track for that one and a half degrees. But I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing that they continue to rise. And then whilst they are rising, that one and a half degree target becomes further and further out of reach. So when you're asking me about this whole regime, the whole sustainable finance agenda being successful, One of the things that I hope this starts to reveal is the uncomfortable truth that markets are still financing new fossil fuel investment. They are still financing companies that have a hand in deforestation activities. And even though there are clear commitments by governments, there are clear commitments by good, strong companies and by financial organisations who are choosing to cut emissions and who are saying that they are playing an active role to end things like deforestation and protect the planet. And these things are not nothing. They're just not enough at the moment. So one maybe statement to you is a lot has been done in building out this framework, but there is still an awful lot more to do in revealing the power and potential of that. So in the kind of call to arms to maybe answer your original question, what can people do? Number one, make sure that you are educated on what good taxonomy disclosure looks like. There's many forums, there's many webinars and training materials and guidance, even available through the European Commission on how to do it right. So seek that out. If you as a sector are not included in the taxonomy and would like to be, we would love to hear from you. That is kind of a remit of the second platform's work. If you have any great bold ideas on how to make it more operable to help achieve these end goals, we would love to hear from you. Uh, Clearly, the whole point is simplification and usability. If it isn't simple and it isn't usable, but you have ideas to make it simple and usable, please let us know. Uh, It's so important that we in the platform representing the view of the market, the financial market and the non-financial market across Europe, So the feedback is indeed critical and we look forward to hearing from your audience in terms of things that we can do better or support them in. That is also education, right? Because you have education on understanding of the regulation, but also about that big picture, why it is needed and what exactly it is trying to achieve. And I think it's to stay on the positive side. I think that's definitely getting better, but it doesn't take one month, right? It takes a bit longer. And that's one of the reasons why not only ISFC exists, but also the CE Sustainable Finance Summit we organized in May. That's one of the main reasons to actually create opportunities for these discussions and knowledge sharing between different partners and actually focusing on some of the practical, not only implementation, but benefits. And as you said, economic opportunities coming with the transition. So I think it's two different conversations we are having and we need to put them together because it's not only compliance with regulation, but it's also actually leveraging some of these opportunities and what it means in practice. And that may take a little bit longer, 
But my personal view, I think that not transition, but that understanding and actually implementing the regulation might accelerate very quickly. Now with everything and you know different legislations kicking in <laughs> in the next two years. So let's see how that goes. So my last question about the taxonomy and regulations, although we could talk about it for much longer, because you did, you did mention that you also advise the UK's government and you work on the, or you focus on the UK's regulatory environment. And you already mentioned that the EU is leading on that. And obviously they, it's a big team of people working on these topics. But could you maybe share a little bit of maybe comparison between the EU and the UK and what is the approach currently in terms of maybe not only taxonomy, but approach on ESG and ESG regulation? Yeah, absolutely. So the EU has led the way in the first taxonomy. That comes with advantages and it also comes with disadvantages. It comes with the joy of hindsight. If I were to do it again, maybe I would change a few things. So when we look at the UK, typically we say what's working really, really well with the EU regime and what's perhaps an opportunity to change it. But with the UK, what is quite challenging then is they operate in global markets. So if you make recommendations that are too divergent from the EU, for example, that's problematic to UK investors because UK investors will be interested in European companies. So the balancing act when you're advising the UK government is how do you be sympathetic to the needs of the financial organisations, i.e. globally operable system between the EU and the UK. Uh, But then similarly, how do you align your own taxonomy to your own domestic ambition? So how do you build out your criteria relative to where are the heavy emitting sectors in your economy, to any government-based ambitions for net zero. So for example, in the UK, there's a real hockey stick approach. They want to do the majority of decarbonising up to 2030. Whereas when we look at, for example, Singapore, they recognise that there is more to be done locally in the um, Asia region. And therefore, as a result, it's going to be more of a gradual phase down out to 2050. So you've got these different ambition levels with the countries and the governments that you're supporting. But then ultimately, what you want to do is measure the same thing. And by measure the same thing, it would be things like for energy, I'd be interested in the grams of carbon per kilowatt hour of the energy being produced. And that doesn't matter whether I'm looking at a Singapore-based energy company or a UK one or a European one. All you're looking at is potentially different thresholds based on what that domestic economy wants. But to make it operable, you always want to measure the same thing. Therefore, all a company has to produce is its energy intensity. And therefore, you can use that metric relative to different thresholds to say whether it aligns to certain taxonomies. So a lot of the advice tends to be how to provide guidance that is sympathetic to the domestic economy, but still works on an international stage with global capital markets. That's the balancing act. That is really well explained, but also really nice to hear because, well, the climate change is a global issue and sustainability should be global approach. So it's good to hear that different regions approach it similarly because the objective essentially is the same. Good. So thank you so much. And the listeners know, so we always try to ask at least one personal question because, well, we have you here and why wouldn't we use that? And as we already went through your career, there's quite a few different things you are part of even now, but also previously in your career. So I am very curious to hear what is that one piece of advice, career advice you would give to someone who's starting 
or maybe graduating university now and wants to work on sustainability topics or maybe even more specifically in sustainable finance? So in sustainable finance particularly, and that's interesting. So I would take this question as what's the career advice that stuck with me most? And I, I might give you two actually, which is a bit naughty. One of them that really resonated for me was there's two career paths. There's yours or the path others choose for you. And I liked that because quite often when you start your career journey, you're kind of at the bottom of the rung of a corporate ladder. And so you end up working to satisfy the agenda that isn't your own. Uh, but that said, I would also say there's a lot of value in experimenting. I don't think kind of 19 year old Nadia, when I started off working for a financial organization as an intern, really knew who or what I wanted to be. Uh, so there's a, a lot of value in the data acquisition of your career. But at a particular pivot point, I think it's really important that you say, this is what I want to do. Uh, this is my vocation. And if you can align your vocation to what you're doing, it's a natural motivator. Um, the second piece of advice that I've heard, and, I, and maybe for people who, you know, are starting in their career, but definitely those that are maybe a little bit more seasoned, um, that I loved is there was in 2018, an article written by Dane Holmes, who, who is now the co-founder of Escalera. And, and I literally, I'm not kidding you, I read this every single year because I think it's such good advice. Uh, but he offers like these five tips that could derail your career. And one of them that is so true to me is something he calls the 24 hour rule. And that says, if you don't have to act or respond in that very moment, don't. Give yourself a day or more importantly, a night to sleep on that point and think things over before you come back with a response. So I would definitely say from my career, the worst decisions I have ever made are typically those in the heat of the moment that I wish I could have taken back and applied the 24 hour rule to. Uh, so those would be my kind of more general pieces of career advice. And for those interested in sustainability, good on you. I read around your topic, you know, try and understand where you can add value. I think we spoke at the start about you know, me recognizing the value that I brought was more in financial markets, less about how you, you know, decarbonize a plastics company. That's not my area of expertise. Um, so what is the value that you can bring? Because sustainability is broad and there are many, many opportunities for you to start your career or even pivot your career as I did into this forum. So I think it is definitely kind of the future of jobs and roles. Um, I'm the mother to two young children who definitely want their future career in something climate change related. Um, and it's very comforting to hear that there's, there's ambitions so young uh, to make such a difference as well. Okay, so this has been a pleasure. And thank you so much, Nadia, for joining us today. And on behalf of ISFC as well, we very much look forward to welcoming you in Prague for this year's CE Sustainable Finance Summit which is happening in May and where Nadia is going to be one of the many inspirational speakers. Thank you for having me. So thanks to all of our listeners as well. Stay tuned for the upcoming episodes of the Sustainability in Finance podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.